HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. With our growing season just around the corner, we're sowing seeds of knowledge and empathy on this week's episode of Meet and Three through four unique stories. I'm always shocked at how aggressive people are with their language. They'll have something like Japanese knockweed and they'll say, you know, these are terrible, they're they're foreigners, they're invasive, and you know, but they're also, you know, they're really healthy if you eat them. We're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us and they're actually already kind of living in the future because cities are hotter and they're more polluted and they're more fragmented and these are the plants that can deal with that. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Professor Michael Wise and Julia Child Foundation Fellow Joshua Lopez from the University of North Texas. In today's episode, We're going to talk to Mike and Josh about Food History Texas style, bringing underrepresented voices into the culinary conversation, and we'll hear another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia famously said, find something you're passionate about and keep tremendously interested in it. Beyond cooking, Julia was passionate about culinary history and how food traditions and the past could also teach us about the present. As the quote attests, she strongly believed in encouraging others to dig deep and share what they'd learned. At the Foundation, we've continued to foster Julia's interest in exploring culinary history by funding research grants and academic fellowships 
in food studies and food media. Way back in episode 67, we introduced you to Professor Jennifer Jensen Wallach, who helps lead the University of North Texas Food Studies program as chair of its history department. At that time, we announced a new Julia Child Foundation graduate fellowship in food studies at the University of North Texas and looked forward to the insights it would add to the ever-growing food studies universe. Today, we're delving into the proof of concept with Professor Wallach's colleagues, University of North Texas Associate Professor Dr. Michael Weiss and PhD student Joshua Lopez. Mike is the Director of Graduate Studies in UNT's History Department. He is a historian of food, agriculture, and human-animal, actually animal-human relationships. We'll find out if it's vice versa. He's the author of Producing Predators, Wolves' Work, and Conquest in the North Rockies. He's also the co-editor of the award-winning Food and Foodways book series, published by the University of Arkansas Press, which the foundation supported. Mike's upcoming book, Native Foods, explores the intersection between food and agriculture and Native American and colonial, colonial history in the United States. Josh is the first Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts Food Studies Fellow in the History Department at the University of North Texas. His academic work focuses on food, memory, and representation, specifically with Latinx and Chicanx studies. In addition, he interviews and writes for El Paso Food Voices, a digital project featuring home cooks and professional chefs. Mike and Joss join us today to talk food history and to teach us how there's more to culinary history than just old cookbooks and recipes. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Well, we're glad you could join us. So let's just start with how things are in Texas, because certainly between COVID and now the polar vortex, Texas has had it rough. Maybe we'll start with Mike. How, how are things in North Texas right now? Well, it's been a rough year this last month in particular. I mean, it's important to acknowledge the suffering of millions of people who didn't have clean water or heat um, during the really a historic cold snap. It was six degrees below zero one morning in Denton, which is the coldest it's been since 1899, according to the Weather Service. I think, uh, you know, aside from the collapse of our deregulated utilities grid that is present on all of our minds right now, um, many of us have also been reflecting on this as a historic moment. In the case of food and agriculture, um, I think this moment speaks to two changes that are kind of afoot. And the first has to do with how we experience the home and the kitchen and the places where we, where we cook and their interconnections to everything else. Over this last year with COVID, uh, people have retreated back to their homes away from public spaces, for instance, the home, perhaps more than it has been in our lifetimes has become a kind of place of safety and of refuge. So what happened to Texans this last month in the midst of the storm was that that place of refuge, that place of safety was taken away. The things that people relied on and <laughs> took for granted uh, in their kitchens, running water, uh, the ability to boil water disappeared. 
Wow. No, I think that that's a great way to 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 frame it. Do, do you feel like that is going to have a really or or is your gut instinct telling you the effect has been so profound of the kind of double whammy of COVID followed by this that it will have a kind of long lasting and profound effect on the on the way Texans view what what they expect from the wider community there? Yeah, I believe so. I think there is, uh, this is something no one's going to forget, and it's going to leave a generational shadow of sorts. Josh, do you want to weigh in on that, or particularly maybe from like how your cohorts of, of graduate students have, have experienced it as well? Yeah, so um, I think a lot of my classmates, uh, we all come from diverse backgrounds, and um, you know, some of us work full-time, some of us are parents. Um, so uh, a lot of the times, uh, I think um, the move to Zoom for a graduate student, it seems simple enough, but when you factor in a lot of those things, there's a lot of uh, juggling um, that comes into play. Um, and um, especially studying as, you know, someone being trained as a historian, uh, trying to be trained as a historian, um, one of the questions is, you know, how do I access certain materials so that I can continue um, forward with my studies as well comes into play. Um, so I think the pandemic has kind of set those limitations. Um, but then I also think a lot of my classmates have been resilient. Um, I know some of us talk about um, learning more about digital archives and thinking about what's out there for us to use while we can't really travel or um, visit archives. Um, and I think also like during this storm, right, we didn't have, a lot of us didn't have power. Um, so I know I had a, I have a friend who studies fashion history and she was just, um, hunkering down in her home, reading books instead of, you know, looking for articles, um, or, you know, doing some kind of digital research. She, you know, started opening up her books and, um, she found one that she really loved. And I think that's, I remember her saying that is what she read the entire, <laughs> the entire time she was at home keeping warm. And are things, uh, is the power back on? I heard that actually it suddenly got hot too. Is, are things like at least at the moment uh, returning to normal or whatever normal might be? Um, yeah, actually a couple of days afterwards, I think I think here in Denton it got up to eighty degrees. I started wearing shorts and I went for walks so I can just enjoy the weather um, after being inside for so long. So yeah, it was the power is back on um, at my apartment. We got our electricity back on Friday and then we got our water back on Monday. Um, and then the weather has been enjoyable. I think today it's been a bit rainy, a bit cloudy, but I think the sun is starting to come out a bit. And Mike, do you want to just cover for sort of pre-bowler vortex, how how open or not open was the university for the last year, I guess? Our university has remained open, um, conducting classes and research, um, the other aspects of our mission to the extent that we can safely um, which required us to move quite a bit of our uh, teaching and our other functions online. So um, our department 
teaches about 8,000 students a year. So we're a pretty large department. And I think for us, you know, the majority of those students have been taking courses remotely. I've been teaching courses at the graduate level remotely. Um, I think the University of North Texas is like most other large public universities, is that in, in, in that we don't have really enough physical real estate to, um, to accommodate all of the face-to-face -face teaching that people would have liked to have been able to do this last year. So, yeah, I think, you know, the impact of COVID, kind of like the impact of the polar vortex, I keep thinking about all of the frozen plants around town, impatiently waiting to see if they'll bounce back from the freeze damage or not. Um, you know, which takes weeks and even months to sort of see the new growth come out on the trees. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is an impact that's, um, that's going to take some time to really play out. And Josh, you were talking about sort of being a graduate student. Do you feel like pre the polar vortex over the pandemic, there you were able to carry on? Like how much of an impediment was it to, to your research and work? And yeah, I think um, I think I've been fortunate enough to be able to continually continuously work on my on my research. Um, one of my main focuses is uh, representations of cooking and eating. So I've been, you know, creating bibliographies of uh, different stories from oral histories to novels and plays, um, and then having the opportunity to read them on my own. So. In that way, um, I've been able to continue my research. And also um, something that Dr. Wise and I were kind of reflecting on the other day was also like the access we have to um, different virtual events because everything has moved online. I, I, had, the I had the opportunity to uh, visit a, an online conference, attend a, an online conference um, on food studies and intersectionality um, and I got to meet some wonderful scholars um, and listen to, to them talk about their work. Um, I also got to do an interview with uh, Dr. Krishnendu Ray at NYU um, for an assignment. Um, it was actually for uh, a, a class uh, with Dr. Wise. He asked us to interview um, someone that we would see as a mentor in our field of study and kind of listen to their their story of becoming scholars uh, of being in a phd program and how they how they developed um throughout their career and so uh through that i was able to meet with uh dr ray and meet him so there's been a lot of uh, opportunities um even if there's a lot of limitations on like where I could go, where I could travel. Um, there's also been a lot of uh, opportunity there. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, there are definitely, we've all found, and I appreciate you sharing those COVID silver linings of of the the change in things. So I, well, let's shift gears because um, I think we've had enough disaster talk for a while and talk about the wider stuff that will hopefully have longer uh, lasting and positive implications. And I want to ask both of you about, and obviously you may or may not be aware, there was a deliberateness at the foundation in funding some of the University of North Texas because we certainly would, well, at least we would not disagree with the accusation that coastal elites tend to dominate the national food conversation. So I was curious from both of your perspectives, 
uh, you might agree with that, you might refute that, but more to the point, like what I want to hear from both of you of what you thought being at University of North Texas and University of North Texas having a food studies program adds to the food conversation. And maybe, Mike, since you're the official professor um, for the moment, um, I thought we'd start with you and then, and then Josh can weigh in. Sure. Um, so I've been at, at the University of North Texas since 2012. And it, um, I found it to be a really exciting place to work. We're a we're a new research university, I think, um, would be one way to describe us. Um, we are, a, you know, Carnegie classification ranked tier one research university. And yet, uh, you know, a, a huge public university that a lot of people haven't heard of before. So it sometimes feels like we are working for an underdog or if not that, that, you know, our not just our food studies program, but our interdisciplinary initiatives all across the university are sort of sleepers or something in, in, uh, in terms of their um, importance within our fields. So we're kind of uniquely positioned here because we're not beholden to an old legacy uh, from the legacy disciplines, for instance. I see this um, in our own history department. We've been really freed up to allow our faculty to pursue um, these kind of entrepreneurial uh, initiatives. Um, so, you know, so food studies has been a focus of ours for the last 10 years. We've um, created a department that has the largest concentration of food historians in the United States. I think in North America, uh, we're rivaled really only by the University of Toronto. Um, and, you know, one of the other kind of aspects of our newness, I think, is that even though we're historians, we're all very future-oriented and interested in thinking about the past in ways that inform contemporary challenges uh, to our food systems, um, to discussions about food and equity. And I think, you know, there's something about that, the sort of unexpectedness of North Texas as being a home for that kind of thinking that gives us a kind of power that I didn't experience, for instance, when I worked at universities on the West Coast um, or when I was, uh, you know, a, a member of, of what you might call a legacy department in the historical discipline. So, you know, just a quick example I like to give. Um, when, when, I was, um, when I was in college, I remember discovering this book that has stuck with me my whole career called The Sexual Politics of Meat. Uh, it's kind of a rumination on um, ecofeminist philosophy, animal-human relationships, written by um, the ecofeminist philosopher Carol J. Adams. And at that time, I just kind of assumed that uh, that Carol J. Adams, you know, she must live in Berkeley or maybe in Cambridge, Mass, or uh, you know, the, the farthest inland maybe she would be would be the Berkshires. Um, and it turns out when I moved to Denton. Um, she lived about 10 miles away in an adjacent Dallas suburb. And so I think that's just kind of a good example. Um, and, you know, her, her and I have become uh, close collaborators over the last decade or so. And, uh, um, you know, it just we've been working most recently on um, projects involving vegan Texas, which is, I think, something else that to many people just sort of strikes them as an oxymoron. If I talk to my friends in Portland, for instance, about all of the vegan restaurants uh, 
in kind of the thriving vegan culture in Dallas, they're usually surprised. I think those are great examples. I always give the example to people, you know, as much as maybe Los Angeles has an in in the national food conversation, it's often easily dismissed as a very superficial place. And I like to remind people I, there are hundreds of universities in greater Los Angeles, which means there's a lot of non-superficial academics who are staffing those universities all living in the same place. But um, broad brushes tend to get applied. So, Josh, what 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 do you want to add to from from your perspective of um, being a graduate student at U, at UNT and also being a Texan? What's your perspective on this? So, just to add a little bit to um, what Doctor Wise was saying, um, I think I think through Doctor Wise, I was introduced to Carol J. Adams at her work and. Um, I started to think more about what that meant, you know, as far as like being in Texas goes and ways of eating and and cooking. And I remember as an undergrad reading um, a novel, I can't remember the title, but it was about uh, Texan cattle ranchers. And so like Texas being this like place um, that revolves around meat and cattle ranching. Um, But then I started to kind of think about that in relationship to like this emergent vegan Mexican identity, this vegan Chicanx identity coming into play. Um, And so I thought it was really exciting how like these stories kind of complicate that myth of Texas being like a meat eating place. Um, And I think that it's exciting that, you know, Dr. Wise brings that perspective in um, and that he was able to share that with, with me, for example, and that's influenced my work. Um, Something else that I appreciate about UNT um, is that what drew me to to come to to the University of North Texas was that the food studies initiative was coming from the history department. It was coming from the humanities. And when I was looking for food studies uh, departments or programs that I could work in as a PhD student, a lot of them were emerging out of the social sciences. and that's not a bad thing, but I was really looking for that connection to stories um, and and looking at food and food stories. And so I was really struck when I learned that uh, the Food Studies Initiative was coming from the humanities. And, and that really spoke to me and, and called to me and attracted me. That makes a lot of sense. So thanks, guys, for that. We're going to come right back with Professor Mike Wise and Julia Child Foundation fellow Josh Lopez to talk more about their work bringing underrepresented voices into the food history conversation. Stay with us. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. 
And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. Are you longing for a trip to Mexico? Do you want to taste mezcal straight out of a wood-fired clay pot still at a palenque in Puebla? Well, we can't help you with that, but we can offer the next best thing, agave road trip in a box. This set of 10 samples of rare heritage agave spirits will transport your heart with the warmth of liquid Mexico. Get your set at agavefestival.org and then join agave road trip podcast co-host Chava and me, Lou, for an online tasting agavefestival.org is the break you've been looking for or as close as you're going to get. Welcome back. We're talking to Professor Mike Wise and Julia Child Foundation fellow Josh Lopez from the University of North Texas about their work to bring underrepresented voices into today's food history conversation. So Josh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the specifics of your work and maybe starting with just your response to explaining how food studies and queer stories come together in what you're doing. Okay. Um, so I was introduced to food studies through uh, a work by Meredith Abarca, who is also my mentor in uh, at the University of Texas at El Paso, where I did my master's. And she wrote about um, Mexican and Mexican-American women um, and the way that they see the kitchen as a site of empowerment. Um, so I, I really started to think about gender and sexuality in relationship to food and the importance of listening to the ways that um, different folks view the kitchen and view the work that they do in the kitchen. And so um, I started to pay attention to, you know, gender and the way that folks view their gender identity or gender expression through food. And for example, there's one story by uh, Alberto uh, Rios. Um, it's called Pig Cookies after like um, um, this uh, a Mexican pastry called a cochinita. Um, and uh, in that story, he is comparing himself to his brothers. So the narrator is comparing himself to his brothers, how the brothers take what they want um, so kind of showing us this kind of dominant masculine traits. And for him, he, um, he, he does not identify with that. Um, and so there's a part where he writes about how the bakery that he works in is a family run bakery. And it's usually, it was usually the women in the family who ran that bakery, but he's the one who has now inherited that. Um, and so, in that story, he's thinking through what it means to be masculine, what it means to be a man, um, through this art of creating a pig cookie. So I'm really listening to the ways that um, folks um, who identify as LGBTQ or feminist, or um, they don't maybe they don't even have to identify as uh, along the, that spectrum, um, but just listening to the way that they transform ideas of gender and sexuality. Um, so that's, that's really what I'm listening to in those stories. And where do you kind of, I, mean, I guess that's a specific example of one research. When you think about your career aspirations more holistically, do you have a vision of, of where or how you want to apply that or, or just more deep dives into writers like that? I think 
I I would want to continue taking like those deep dives, also listening to oral histories, um, and and to stories from people who identify as LGBTQ, um, or even again they don't have to identify as such. Just kind of listening to their stories of of cooking and and I think one of the themes that I kind of see um, connecting a lot of these are like care. This idea that um, care work at home is typically feminine, um, but then there are there are folks who kind of transform that idea, and so I think that that happens a lot of the time, not just in fictional stories, but um, in in people's everyday lives. That's kind of fascinating because I I think going back to what we started at the, at the top of the episode talking about um, changes in the pandemic and and COVID that there's been so much more conversation, particularly amongst top chefs, people I'm thinking of like Jose Andres and Tom Colicchio, who are, you know, very well known for originally their food and and maybe to some degree exemplifying or maybe exemplifying too strong, but being associated with that image of masculine chefs. But talking about their fundamental job and reason for being as a chef is to look after people, not just to create great works. Is that something that you've been looking at as well? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I think there's an oral history that comes to mind that's really influenced my work is uh, is by Antonio Lopez, who is from El Paso. Um, and he he talks about his work as a chef as a cook, um, about caring for his community, uh, particularly in El Paso, Segundo Barrio, which is kind of a, a poor neighborhood. Um, but he re- he greatly values the knowledge that comes out of the barrio space. So I think I think, for example, people would probably might they might consider Segundo Barrio to be a food desert um, because because of its locale and what's around it. But Antonio, in listening to his oral history, he really appreciates the creativity that comes from those neighborhoods, um, the ways that people create uh, very nourishing dishes from what is around them. There's another oral history where um, where where the, our narrator is telling us about um, verdolagas or purslane that they're viewed as this weed. Um, but she gathers them from her neighborhood and she cooks them and shares them with her neighbors. So in their stories, I hear a care for their neighbors and a care for their their home, their place, their community. Wow, that's very transporting, even even when you're talking about a, a barrio. I, I, we're shift gears a little bit because I want to make sure to have time to kind of cover a bunch of things and want to hear from Dr. Wise about his work, which is in a l- little bit different pathways. And then, Josh, I might challenge you to see if you can, can link them up in any way possible. But... Um, Mike, I know that you've been doing a lot of work on on Native American foodways and traditions, and certainly, I think even the pandemic has brought to more attention to what was already a starting movement of looking at both the health benefits and the environmental benefits of Native American food traditions and practices. But I also know that you're looking at the the language that's being used around that about things like oh, it's being discovered or rediscovered, and whether that's appropriate or whether it's even 
accurate. So could you tell us more about uh, about your your views and how you think we should be looking at um, this approach to Native American food traditions? Yeah, of course. So, I, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people, when they use the word discover or discovery, it's very innocent. It's like, uh, you know, I went to New York and I discovered Milk Bar or, or just, you know, or, or a new vegan restaurant or, you know. But then there's also a way that discovery, I think, needs to be understood as a certain idiomatic frame that puts you like on board the ship with Christopher Columbus. In other words, it's a frame that recapitulates the kind of colonial gaze that that really, I think, a Eurocentric set of culinary traditions in the United States um, have long taken towards native cuisines or indigenous cuisines, whether you know they're Native American or indigenous in a more global sense. And so in this new book called Native Foods that I'm finishing up, one of the things that I uh, am paying close attention to is trying to think about the kind of, you know, the native foods um, that <laughs> were never lost, you know, native foods in general were never lost and needed being rediscovered. But to think instead about the kinds of stories that have been told about native foods, the kind of histories that have been told about native foods, to think about how the narratives that frame Americans' understandings of native cuisine uh, are expressed not only in the kind of textual realm with stories, but also in the kind of practices of American foodways, the Thanksgiving holiday, for instance, um, or even how they are expressed in what you might think of as a biophysical landscape in the ways that the American agricultural environment has been transformed across five centuries of settler colonialism. So, um, so yeah, I, th I think it's really important to focus on, um, you know, on the stories, which stories get told and why do some stories get told and other stories not get told uh, and kind of use that as a starting point for framing the history of native food um, instead of this kind of uh, discourse of discovery or this idiom of discovery and rediscovery that I think, um, you know, serves a certain purpose in food writing, for instance, of kind of generating excitement about something new and interesting and discover. And like I said, that's often very innocent. Um, but we need to grapple as well with the uh, kind of deep-seated colonial history that, um, that accompanies... Um, that kind of writing and that kind of a frame. Do you want to share one of those stories of, of something that you found in, in the work that you've been doing that really uh, kind of uh, illustrates uh, the point that you were just making? Yeah, absolutely. I, so I've been writing just recently about, um, about Buffalo Bird Woman's Garden. Probably if people have heard of this, that's, that's the reference that they've heard. Um, a Hidatsa woman named Maha Diwiyash, a buffalo bird woman in English. In the 19th century, um, became the subject of an ethnographic work that um, came to become the first, actually, the first uh, doctoral dissertation in anthropology at the University of Minnesota. And has since been republished as kind of this classic 
account of Native American agriculture um, titled Buffalo Birds, Bird Woman's Garden. In 1950, so about 20 years after her death, her garden, or really a farm, uh, was submerged by the construction of the Garrison Dam in North Dakota underneath Lake Sakakawea, which is the fourth largest uh, artificial lake in the United States. And I've been kind of thinking about this um, from a few different, or on a few different registers. I mean, kind of the immediate register is, I mean, this is an example of how native food history um, can be made invisible in a physical environment. Um, so that now when you're on the kind of the grassy shores of Lake Sakakawea looking out, most people don't realize, you know, the presence of Buffalo Birdwoman's Garden underneath. This is, you know, this lake appears to be natural. It appears to have always been there, um, you know, in spite of the history of the dam, um, which I, I should mention, not only inundated Buffalo Birdwoman's Garden, but hundreds of thousands of acres of alluvial soils on the upper Missouri River bottoms that have been uh, you know, farm for centuries. Um, and, you know, so this also, I think, helps us reflect, for instance, on these, on, on the common trope of the narrative of the Plains Indian or the image of a bison hunting uh, native uh, person astride a horse, or, you know, um, the Mandan, the Hadatsa, uh, Buffalo Bird Woman's neighbors, okay, they, they were farmers. But when these kinds of um, you know stories are removed from the landscape, where the where the presence of these historic sites are inundated or submerged, um, it becomes all the more difficult to try to narrate those tales or signify those tales. Um, and so, just another register that I find so fascinating about this whole story: Buffalo Bird Woman's husband in the 1880s gave. Uh, a sack of Hadassah white beans to, um, to a man named Oscar Will, who's famous as a seed collector. Um, and one of the things that I've been working on researching in this book is sort of the history of these beans. They ended up becoming marketed as the great northern bean, the ubiquitous canned industrial bean. People don't think of the native origins of the great northern bean. And I think that's indicative of this broader kind of frame where Americans oftentimes are inclined to think of native people, particularly in the modern era, as being sort of the recipients of food rather than the purveyors of food. And so what I want to do in this book, what I'm working on is um, trying to kind of re-narrate the history of native foods by centering American Indian people as producers rather than as recipients. Um, and I think that's important because it helps reshift the frame, not by, you know, saying, yeah, uh, you know, the dark heart of American industrial agriculture has native roots or something like that. That's not what I'm trying to, uh, that's not what I'm trying to, you know, argue or suggest. Uh, but what I want people to understand about native foods is that they are central to the American story in ways that were never lost, just not appreciated, just not widely understood. And so the question that that leads me to is why? Why have some stories about native foods come to be told and others left untold? Um, and I, I think that actually might be one of the threads at the core that unites my work and Josh's work 
Um, and maybe is one of the kind of central sets of questions that pervades the work of a lot of our colleagues here at UNT. Well, those are wonderful examples. D Josh, do you want to weigh in? Because I was just thinking about, I'm not sure where your work intersects with, uh, obviously, many Latinx and Ch Chicanx people have ind indigenous cultural traditions or traditions that are informed by indigenous roots. Is, is that a point of intersection or is it something else? No, I think that there is a there is a, uh, a a big point of intersection. One of the things I mentioned earlier was this emergent kind of Chicanx vegan identity that I'm that's really caught my attention. And part of it is this reclaiming of um, indigenous ways of knowing, of cooking. Um, in agricultural practices. Um, there was a cookbook that came out in 2015, I believe, uh, Decolonize Your Diet. Um, and it's a it's a book of recipes of plant-based Mexican-American recipes. And so I see there's a lot of overlap, um, a, a lot of overlap with that, reclaiming uh, this, this sense of ancestral knowledge of, of foods. Um, so I yeah I think I think that that's one big uh, point of connection and the other would be the the stories that that Dr. Wise was, was talking about this notion that um, why do we listen to some stories um, and not not to others and I think that's a connection with Chicanx and queer histories um, for for example in uh, in an influential article for me um, by Emma Perez. Uh, she uh, it's titled "Queering the Borderlands." Um, she talks about how queer histories are made of is invisible because of the the criminality of of homosexuality in the past, and so a lot of the times these stories are are invisible to us, and we have to look at different types of sources. We have to read against the grain and and look at things with a different set of eyes. Um, and so like one story, one source that has been influential to me has been a novel by uh, Carla Trujillo called What Night Brings. And uh, that novel is about a young girl named Marcy. Um, she's Mexican-American and she is, she is coming to terms with her sexual identity. She, the, the entire novel is her, you know, kind of questioning what does it mean to be queer? What does it mean to be gay? There's a there's a funny scene where she asks the nun at her Catholic school, you know, what does it mean to be queer or what does it mean to be gay? And the nun answers her, you know, well, it means to be happy. So she's on the search for this question and if it's something that she identifies with. And there's a really nice scene on Thanksgiving um, where um, her uncle, who she suspects is having an affair with a Catholic priest, they're both in the kitchen preparing the entire Thanksgiving meal for her family. And she's wondering as she watches them uh, cook and prepare Thanksgiving dinner if they're queer. And the the image that she says to us as the narrator, it's so loving. Like it, she's expressing how how these two men are loving each other and loving others through this meal preparation, and that was really powerful for me. So that's kind of one of the sources that it made me wonder, and it helped me to imagine the possibilities of that not just existing within a fictional text, but within our own historical reality. 
Well, that's lovely. So I also, uh, we need to move forward so we can get to your Julia moment, but I would be remiss, Josh, if I didn't ask you how does it feel or what's it like to be the inaugural Julia Child Foundation Fellow in Food Studies at UNT? Oh, it's it's been such an honor. Um, I, I really do enjoy being a part of the UNT program. And I think that if it weren't for the Julia Child Foundation Fellowship, I don't think I would be here. Um, so it, uh, it has been an honor. It's been scary at times because sometimes I feel like it, the name is so heavy, Julia Child and, you know, the Julia Child Foundation. I, it felt like I had to live up to something. But then, um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, uh, our le- the lesson for Julia um, early on in the episode, I think, I think that she would have encouraged me, you know, I don't have to follow her path or, or someone's path. I, I create my own and I, and I follow it with passion. So um, I think, I think that it's been so exciting in that, in that way. That's great. Well, you answered my net. My follow-up question was, is, is it more help than pressure? But I think you, you said it was both, but I can also channel Julia who would have said, Oh dearie, I didn't know what I was doing for such a long time. So you're already ahead of the game. All right, after the break, Mike and Josh are going to give us another double Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. For more inspiring witticisms from Julia, a new book of her quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People, and other wisdom is out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen. Who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Since we're doing an academic episode, we'll go with seniority. Uh, Mike, what's your Julia moment? So my Julia moment, um, the one that I, I guess, continually reflect on uh, is when I discovered my go-to dish to bring to barbecues, um, especially here in Texas, where uh, as a vegan going to a barbecue, I often bring vegan dishes with me. Um, so, so this stretches back um, to when I was a PhD student, uh, and I was living in South Minneapolis in a house that um, had a little gravel driveway to park my car in. Um, and I had some fingerling potatoes that I had forgot, forgotten to eat and they had sprouted. So I kind of roughed up uh, this gravel patch and I planted them and covered them up with some more dirt and some more gravel and kind of forgot about them. They, uh, you know, they grew like a weed in the sense that they looked like weeds along the fence and I didn't pay them much attention until I dug them up a couple months later. And I was really impressed at the bounty of these fingerling potatoes that I had just sort of left in the rocky soil and neglected. 
And I remember thinking if I kind of like blurred my vision, the whitewashed like cinder block garage <laughs> across the alley, um, I could like pretend that if I, I was in like what I imagined Provence and its rocky soils to look like. So um, I took the potatoes in and I pulled off uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking from the Shelf. Uh, and I believe it's on page 541. There's a Julia's recipe for potato salad uh, with oil. Um, and I guess this was my Julia moment. I mean, I, I made it. Uh, it's very simple. Um, you just make a dressing with oil and, you know, you, uh, and some herbs uh, and toss boiled potatoes, um, let it cool and you eat it. Um, and I've been making it ever since. Like I said, it's kind of my go-to dish. One I other thing, too. I love that. Do you call it yeah. Dr. Wise's uh, gravel driveway potato salad? Uh, I'll actually, I, I, yeah, I, I like that. Or uh, garden variety, gravel variety or something. But uh, yeah, I, I think from a historical perspective, this also makes me reflect every time I make it on uh, Julia's, uh, Julia's work as a historical source. Um, I've adapted the recipe, I think, to the 21st century palate, which probably demands ever more intense flavors. Uh, so, like, I remember, you know, she says that the shallots are optional. Well, I like quadruple her suggestion <laughs> when I add the shallots. I double the herbs, uh, and then I, you know, um, dump a heaping, generous portion of truffle salt on the top before I serve it. So maybe that helps make it extra delicious or something. But, uh, yeah, but but why? I you know, and I, I think that maybe that represents some kind of a difference between our the way that we taste food in the 21st century and maybe that we tasted food in the 20th century. Um, I don't know, you know, if that's true or not, but to me it raises a question, and these are the kinds of questions that food historians, um, <laughs> that we use as our starting point. Uh, so that's really, uh, I think, an important legacy that's maybe somewhat um, underappreciated about Julia uh, is her significance as a historical source for us. That's great. I love it. All right, Josh, uh, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> so I was introduced to Julia Child through Meryl Streep, <laughs> um, the film Julia and Julia. And I think, I think one of the moments in the movie that I really loved was when they were watching reruns of her cooking show and she messes up her, I think it, it was an omelet or like a potato uh, kind of pancake thing. And she tries to flip it and it breaks. And so I, I, that, that prompted my curiosity. I was like, I wonder if this really happened. Did Julia Child really make mistakes <laughs> on her show on camera? And I found the clip of, um, of her making that dish. And I think, what she says is just, it, it's left a mark on me that you have to flip with the courage of your convictions. And I think that inspires me in so many ways, because when I cook, I know I try to make everything look perfect. Um, and I get in like a really bad mood if it looks, if my dish looks kind of ugly. <laughs> but also, I think that carries, uh, that carries on with me in everything I do from being a PhD student to, um, you know, being trying to be a good partner, for example. It's like I, I always try to be perfect, but I think that those words really echo with me all the time, just, you know, to flip with the courage of my convictions. And if I mess up, I can always create something new from that. Because I think that was another aspect of that clip that I really um, 
admired how she, you know, was like, you know what, it's messed up. I'm going to put it in the oven, put some cheese on it um, and make something new. No one's going to know. Um, and, and so I think that that advice carries on in different aspects of my life. That's great. And I, I think that's my number one learning as a, a viewer of cooking competition shows is it's always the dish that tastes better that beats the dish that looks good and tastes bad. And that, you know, a lot can be saved by deliciousness and a lot of deliciousness can come from from just simply care or adding a lot of cheese or um, extra shallots. <laughs> well, um, thank you both very much for joining us today. Um, and uh, we hope things get better and better in Texas. Thank you. Thanks, Todd. And thanks, everyone, for listening. For more about food studies and culinary history at the University of North Texas, it's at UNT History on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also visit history.unt.edu. For the latest from the foundation and about new podcast episodes, as always, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip, the very one that is from that famous episode of the pancake flipping, is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. And thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New Friend Torn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.